Page 1, Chapter 1 Human Resources and the Law Chapter Outline Development of Employment Regulation Employment at Will Federal Legislative Action State Action Employment Relationship as a Contract Public and Private Sectors Guidelines for Human Resource Practitioners Structure of the Courts American society has typically viewed with suspicion attempts by governments, particularly the federal government, to discipline economic tendencies in general and employment relationships in particular. Indeed, the 19th century liberal tradition was clearly hostile to any attempt by government to restrict the rights of private property or to dictate to any individual how his or her property might be utilized. To ignore the natural laws of the marketplace by controlling prices or wages or the terms and conditions of employment was considered to be neither wise or prudent. This laser fare approach was supported both by common law doctrine that denied the existence of a property right to employment and by the classical economic theory that viewed labor as merely as factor production. Indeed, the entire employment relationship was based on the common law, master and servant doctrine that legally placed the employee in a position subordinate to the employer. Development of Employment Regulation The impetus to challenge the 19th century status quo came largely from two separate but related developments. Industrialization and urbanization, the unprecedented industrialization that occurred in the United States during the last decades of the 19th century created dramatic changes that affected patterns of work employment relationships, and standards of living. This same period also witnessed a changeover in American society from a predominant agrarian one to an urbanized one. Page 2 Workers, particularly young workers, were drawn from the farms to the cities in search of greater freedom and economic reward. According to census figures, there were only 141 cities of 8,000 persons or more in 1860. By 1900, there were 545 such cities with 160 of these exceeding 25,000 persons. The employment experience, if they had any at all, of these new urban urbanities had been primarily as family workers. The employment experience if they had any at all, of these new urbanities had been primarily as family farm workers, ranch hands, or rural storekeepers. In the city, they were confronted with industrial employment in new and unfamiliar surroundings, found themselves in competition for jobs with recent immigrants, and experienced unregulated wages and working conditions, exploitation, submarginal living conditions, and a new kind of poverty. The plight of this new industrial worker was first addressed by Congress motivated, in most instances reluctantly, by the progressive movement of the early 20th century. Progressive attempts to remedy the most 
egregious symptoms of the labor problem resulted in the passage of worker-oriented reforms. Child labor legislation regarding the restriction of the hours and types of work, protective laws for women, industrial employment, and workers' compensation statutes, individual states, were examples of these early reforms. Even the rights and status of organized labor were at least recognized and in rare instances promoted by the federal government in the early years of 20th century, beginning with Theodore Roosevelt's intervention of the 1902 coal strike and culminating with the passage of the Railway Labor Act in 1926. The latter part of the 20th century saw government increase its level of influence in the private sector, although not systematically or always with sufficient knowledge of the problem it was attempting to address. Such influence was seen through expanded protective legislation that established the rights of employees in the workplace, principally through the adoption of the National Labor Relations Act in 1935 and much later through state legislation providing public employees with the right to collectively bargain. In the 1970s, federal legislation safeguarded pension funding, mandated minimum safety conditions, and provided employment rights following military service and family medical situations. The most powerful of these changes were statues devised to provide equal opportunity and fair compensation practices. Employment at Will Fundamental to an understanding of the development of human resources law in the United States is the Employment at Will Doctrine. This doctrine placed the courts fully in support of the employer's desire to dominate the employment relationship by controlling job security. The Atwell Doctrine holds that an employee can be terminated without legal liability for good cause, bad cause, or no cause at all. The doctrine is not applicable where there is an expressed statutory pro prohibition or formal contract, including collective bargaining agreements. This general rule of the common law is stated in the American Law Reports o ALR as follows. Despite its sometimes harsh operation and the obvious opportunities for abuse, it affords an unscrupulous employer few legal principles would seem to be better settled than the broad generally than an employment for an indefinite term is regarded as an employment at will which may be terminated at any time by either party for any reason or for no reason at all. The at-will doctrine originated in the English common law and gained widespread acceptance in the U.S. courts. The unquestionable acceptance of the at-will rule is illustrated in the extreme case where an employee were discharged because of his wife refused to sleep with his supervisor. Page 3 The employee challenged the employer's right to discharge for this reason, but the court rejected his suit because of the employment at-will doctrine empowered his employer to discharge him at any time for any reason even if the reason was immoral. The Atwell Doctrine was sustained by the U.S. Supreme Court in Adair, United States, 208 U.S. 161-1908. 
when the court declared unconstitutional a statute that prohibited the discharge of a railroad employee because of his union membership. The court said that since the duration of the employment was not specified, both the employer and the employee had equal rights to terminate for any reason. Few legal doctrines have been more firmly established than this common law right of the employer to discharge employees without legal consequences. In another instance, an employee was discharged for trading at a certain store that his employer decided to put out of business. The court found that the employer had a right to discharge, even if it was morally wrong, and held that the law cannot compel them, employers, to employ workers nor keep them employed. Even as late as 1949, a court held that an employer could discharge for no reason at all. Erosion of Employment at Will With the migration of labor from farms to factory piecework and assembly lines, what was deemed simply a labor problem became viewed as more of a social problem. A worker's survival often depended on the whims of the employer and the job of most American workers depended almost entirely on the continued goodwill with their employers. The employer's right to terminate without a legal risk first began to come under attack during the progressive era from social critics, economists, and legal scholars. The result was the beginning of a gradual erosion of the employment at will doctrine through limiting legislation, specifically legislation concerning employees' rights such as the Labor Management Relations Act of Amendment and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as amendment compelled the courts to adopt a changed view of this harsh doctrine. Some employees who challenged the at-will doctrine argue that their employment was for a fixed period, either expressed or implied. Others maintained that the employer had an obligation to evaluate job performance in good faith and therefore could terminate only for cause. Still others relied more on traditional legal arguments to justify their claims for relief such as due process the doctrine of good faith and fair dealing or alleged malicious action by the employer. In a climate of employee rights created by Congress in other areas, the courts began to more favorably look at the wrongly discharged employees' arguments. These cases almost always involved breach of contract or violation of state statute and were therefore typically brought in state courts. Accordingly, there has been, there continues to be, some variations in the application of the at-will principle across the states. The early 1980s witnessed the further erosion of the common law, doctrine of employment at-will as federal legislation regulating the American workplace expanded. As one court stated, it represents an area of the law undergoing dynamic development. As a result, employees and lawyers were more willing to pursue discharge cases that they might have been rejected in the past. Further, the reporting of court verdicts and settlements by the news media resulted in greater exposure of the employer to litigation related to discharges.
The proponents of eliminating the at-will doctrine are quick to point out that the United States is the only industrialized country that does not provide employees with some form of comprehensive protection against wrongful discharge. The just cause provisions of labor agreements cover some employees but union membership has failed to keep pace with a growing workforce and today only about 13% of the workforce is covered by labor agreements. However, employers have not been deceived into believing that the at-will doctrine has been abolished by the courts or accepted the premise that they must show just cause in all cases of discharge. Page 4 Federal Legislative Action Statutory restriction not only limited at-will doctrine, but it also provided employees with the right to negotiate with employers over wages, hours, and terms and conditions of employment, as well as establish minimum standards for wages and hours. These restrictions were first established in the provisions of the National Railway Labor Act in 1926 which recognize unionization and collective bargaining in the railway industry and provided for boards of adjustment through which employees could challenge terminations. These encroachments on the employment relationship were held by the Supreme Court. The Railway Labor Act was followed in 1935 by the National Labor Relations Act which will be discussed in Chapter 8. Originally known as the Wagner Act, this stated covers many but not all private sector employees and protects them from discharge when engaged in concerned activities for the purpose of mutual aid and protection. Protection from discharge because of concert concerted activity includes union organizing activity and extends to verbal complaints about working conditions as well as dissatisfaction because of wages. Most union collective bargaining agreements include a provision that requires the employer to demonstrate just cause when disciplining or discharging an employee. The contract terms remove the employee from at-will status. The Fair Labor Standards Act, discussed in Chapter 5, provides for minimum wages and requires premium payments for overtime hours, but also prohibits discharge for exercising rights guaranteed by the minimum wage and overtime provisions of the Act. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its 1991 amendments, 42 U.S.C. 2000E-2, 2000E-3, 1981, prohibits discharge and other job actions based on race, color, religion, gender, or national origin, and reprisal for exercising Title VII rights. This legislation is addressed in Chapter 2. Protection against termination or reprisal for employees between the ages of 40 and 70 is provided by the Age Discrimination in Employment Act of 1967-29 USC 623, 631, and 633. The issue is also covered in Chapter 2. The Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970-29 USC 661 
1975, discussed in Chapter 6, provides for workplace safety standards, authorizes procedures for employees to enforce these standards, and prohibits the discharge of employees in reprisal for exercising rights under the Act. The Rehabilitation Act of 1973-29, USC 793-794-1975, addressed in Chapter 4, prohibits federal contractors or any program receiving federal financial assistance from discriminating against handicapped persons. The Americans with Disabilities Act 42 USC 12112, also considered in Chapter 4, prohibits the discharge of or discrimination against persons because of certain disabilities. The Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993, Public Law Number 1033-1076, discussed in Chapter 4, prohibits discharge or adverse action against employees whose exercise this statutory right to take leave of personal or family medical reasons or to provide care needed by family members as a result of their military service. Other regulatory registration not given extensive coverage in this text includes, but is not limited to, Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, as amended by the Pension Reform Act of 2006, 29 U.S.C. 1140-1141-1975 prohibits discharge of employees in order to prevent them from attaining vested pension rights. Consumer Credit Protection Act 15, U.S.C. 1674A, 1982, prohibits discharge of employees because of garnishment of wages for anyone indebtedness. Civil Service Reform Act of 1978, 5, U.S.C. 7513-1980, permits removal of federal civil service employees only for such cause as will promote the efficiency of the service. Judiciary and Judicial Procedure Act, 28 U.S.C. 1875, Sub 1982 prohibits discharge of employees for service on grand or petit jury. Federal Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification or WARN, Act 29 U.S.C. 2101-1988 prohibits discharge of employees in connection with plant closing without specified notice and or severance pay. This list is not exhaustive. For a complete listing, see Richard Carlson, Carlson's Federal Labor Law Annotated, Rochester, New York, West Publishing, Corporation 2009. Page 5. State Action. Whistleblower Laws. Various states have also regulated the employment relationship through so-called whistleblower statutes and applying public policy exceptions to the at-will doctrine through the courts. Although the first state whistleblower statute was not adopted until 1981, a majority of states have since adopted one. These statutes apply to the private sector as well as the public sector. Almost all public employees are protected by whistleblower statutes. The various statutes have some degree of uniformity, but beyond the basics, they are widely diverse. 
The objective of all these statutes is to provide protection for all employee who, in public interest, discloses a violation of the law by an employer superior or co-worker. These statutes also give protection to the employer in providing penalties for false or unwarranted disclosures. Most statutes include a very broad protection for employees and prohibit retaliatory action against any employee who testifies or provides information to a public body. In some states, the statute requires that there must be an objective belief on the part of the whistleblower that the employer violated the law, whereas in other states that the employee must make an attempt to verify the accuracy of the information. There is also a wide variation in other statutes concerning to whom the disclosure must be made. Some laws require disclosure to any local, federal, or state agencies, whereas other states permit it to be made internally to the attorney, general, or other official of the state. Various forms of notice provisions also appear in the statutes. Some of these notice provisions require that the employer be put on notice before the disclosure, but others do not. The remedies for violation of whistleblower protection also differ across states. Some of these statutes require that the whistleblowing employee be made whole, whereas others provide for punitive damages. Some statutes even provide for crematory penalties as well as a civil penalty. The employer's defense against potential violation of whistleblower statutes is to establish procedures and policies that require the employee to report to the company and belief of company misconduct. This allows opportunity and time for the employer to correct any wrongdoing or explain to the employee why the company has taken a particular course of action. The Public Policy Exception The public policy exception to the Employment at Will doctrine has been adopted by a majority of state courts. This exception declares that the employer should not be permitted to discipline or discharge an employee for reasons that are violative of public policy. Public policy is a broad and less than clearly defined term used by the courts as the basis for an exception to an otherwise well-accepted principle of law. Under this exception, the employee's cause of action is based on the harm that society suffers as a result of employer's conduct. The employee is not alleging that there is an injury to himself or herself, but rather an injury to society. Some law textbooks define public policy as a private dealing that is restricted by law for the good of the community. Another definition is whatever contravenes good moral or established interests of society. Public policy is decided on a case-by-case -case basis and often is not defined by the court until after violation has occurred. For example, the courts have held that a gambling contract, although it complies with all the necessary elements of the contract, cannot be enforced because the contract is not for the benefit or for the convenience of the public. Other exceptions to principles of law 
are not as widely accepted by enforcement of gambling contracts. The common law exception of public policy to employment at will is one of them. Where a discharge had been held to be a violation of public policy, the basis for a discharge is also likely to reveal poor employee relation practice. Three distinctly different reasons for discharge have been held to the contrary to public policy. These include exercising a right under a statute refusing to disobey a law when requested to do so by the employer, and disclosing violations of the law by the employer to authorities commonly called whistleblower cases. Under the public policy exception, theory of the employee alleged that a public policy issue exists, that the employer failed to observe the public policy, and that the employee was discharged in reta retaliation for following the policy. The basis for the public policy violated concept is founded in tort law. Tort law as applied to this concept is based on the premise that each member of society owes an obligation to every other member to be treated fairly. Public policy is therefore violated when the employee is treated unfairly. A violation of an explicit provision in a statute is not considered an exception to employment at will, but simply a violation of the statute. One of the statutory rights that the employee sometimes objects to is the employee's right to file for and receive workers' compensation benefits. In one case, a local gas company discharged an employee without giving a reason after the employee obtained a settlement on a workers' compensation claim. In this landmark case, the court explained the reasoning underlying this and other situations where an employee exercises a right under the statute when it said, If employers are permitted to penalize employees for filing workmen's compensation claims, a most important public policy will be under, un, undermined. The fear of being discharged would have been delivers effect on the exercise of the statutory right. Employees will not file claims for justly deserved compensation, opting instead to continue their employment without incident. The end result, of course, is that the employer is effectively relieved of his obligation. Termination of employment is often the retaliatory measure chosen by employers in response to employees filing workers, compensation claims, or exercising other rights based on statute. The issue in all these cases is whether this discharge is actually because the employee filed a claim under statutory law or because he or she violated the employee's rule or policy. A more serious situation arises when an employee refuses to break the law and is discharged. Most courts consider it as contrary to the public policy to force an employee to choose between violating the law and keeping a job. Page 7. Making continued employment contingent on the commission of a felony is a tortious violation of public policy and an exception to the Admiral Doctrine. Other public policy exceptions to common law, employment at will doctrine include discharge for performing jury duty, reporting to authorizes any violation of the law by the employer, 
reporting a health hazard and a showing of malice or bad faith on the part of the employer. Some state courts have protected at-will employees when discharged for reason of malice and bad faith. These jurisdictions hold that an employee must be protected from the unrestricted discretion of the employer to be discharged. State courts allow malice and bad faith as cause of action, but may not find the violation severe enough for the plaintiff to obtain reinstatement or receive monetary damages. Choosing to seek damages in a state court rather than seeking a remedy under arbitration has been approved by the Supreme Court in Lingle v. Norjdiv of Magic Chef Incorporation, 109 South CT 1877-1988, where the court held the union represented employees can sue the employer in the state court over dismissal even when the contract provides a grievance procedure and arbitration. Finally, it should be noted that one state, Montana, has adopted a wrongful discharge statute. This 2001 statute provides that employers must show costs to terminate employees who have completed a probationary period. Although a Model Employment Termination Act (META) was proposed in 1991 as a standard for states to modify employment at will by requiring good cause for termination, no other states have adopted such legislation. Employment Relationship as a Contract Contractual relationships are at the heart of English common law and employment contracts are noted earlier. Modify the Employment at Will Doctrine However, unlike collective bargaining contracts, individual written employment contracts are relatively rare, although many courts will find an implied contract in the employment relationship. Under contract law, there must be an offer, an acceptance, and consideration. The courts will hold the offer of employment is an offer under contract law. The acceptance is coming to work at a certain time. The consideration is the wages paid for services. Since there is usually nothing in writing, the courts are inclined to find that the statute of frauds does not apply because of the contract of employment can be performed within one year. The employee can quit or the employer can discharge within one year without exposure. Where companies have positive human resource policies, the common law exceptions of public policy, whistleblowing and malice and bad faith are academic, but this is not necessarily so with the, with the implied contract exception, well-intended human resources policy could actually increase exposure to the implied contract exception. For example, aggressive recruiting and promotion that result in promises being made at the time of hiring, handbooks that promote the company as a place of continuous employment, and coded as annual salaries, which may be on learning whether someone is in by contract of continuous employment. Look at the circumstances at time of time and promise when Where promise is considered implied contract, place shows a lot of promise. One example would be a long-distance move, the employee left a secure job 
with a competitor, and if the was discharged without cause, or where there was a reliance on a promise of better than interest. Promises of kind are not uncommon when an aggressive recruiter is operating in a tight labor market. The reason the job does not materialize or the employees laid off may be legitimately social and financially harmed. In this situation, the courts often allow punitive damages. One of the more def definitive statements from a court that adopted the implied contract approach is found in Pew Seas Candies Inc. 116 CAL. APP 3rd 311-1981, where a vice president of employee relations with 32 years of service was terminated. When he asked why, he was told, look deep within yourself. The jury detem determined that the length of service, a series of promotions and commendations, the lack of direct criticism of his work, and the assurance by his superior that if he need a good job, his future will be secure established an implied contract. The company violated that contract by the discharge. A common practice that can result in an exposure is coding an annual salary in a job offer. This is a good selling point, but it can often backfire. An annual salary figure impresses the applicant because it looks much larger than a week or a monthly figure. However, after the employee is terminated, the courts consider how the annual salary offer was interpreted by the employee rather than the intent of the person who originated it. In Barand v. MII Systems Inc., 8 IER cases 325 BNA 1993 the court in reversing a long established precedent said that an employee expects to be employed at will when hired and an annual salary code does not mean a one-year contract the few state courts that have had the issue before them are split on whatever whether a one-year contract is formed by coding an annual salary for example, South Dakota has a statute stating that when an annual salary is coded, it results in a contract for one year, SD codified laws, section 61.3. The concept that a contract is created by coding a salary nor for a fixed period of time is not the law in all jurisdictions, and only a few state courts have directly addressed an issue through legislation. The problem in the use of annual salary is that it may create exposure to lawsuits, win or lose. Coding a monthly salary does not create the same exposure. Annual salary is a term that probably should be deleted from the human resource recruiter's vocabulary. Some jurisdictions have held that employee handbooks or policy manuals may also create an implied contract. The Michigan court in a leading case involvement Blue Cross and Blue Shield held that guidelines and the supervisor's manual were an express contract. The clauses that were especially troublesome were where a supervisor's manual stated that an employee could be discharged only for a just cause and could work until 65 as long as he did his job. In a companion case that the employee testified that he was promised at the time of hiring, he could work for the company as long as I did my job. 
The court said that was the contract that changed the Atwell Doctrine, although it was an oral promise. In a New York case, an employee handbook stated that an employee would be discharged only for just cause. When hired, the employee signed the application form, which stated that the employment would be subject to handbook on personal policy. Eight years later, he was discharged. The court held that the handbook was a contract and that the employer had to demonstrate just cause to terminate. However, in reaching those conclusions, the court held that this was an express contract. Page 9 A Minnesota case where a handbook was deemed an implied contract involved a loan officer in a bank who was in default on his personal loan and had approved 56 out of 57 loans in violation of the loan policy. Nonetheless, his subsequent discharge was held to be a breach of contract because the employer failed to follow the discharge procedure outlined in the handbook, even though it had a legitimate reason to terminate the loan officer. The two Michigan cases and the Minnesota case cited here were subsequently accepted by several other jurisdictions, which many employers interpreted as a warning. Some became gun-shy and discarded their handbooks. By 1985, the vast majority of states held that a handbook could be deemed a contract under certain circumstances, although some industrial states, such as New York, Illinois and Indiana still required a written contract before the at-will status could be changed. Practitioners should also be aware of another common practice, flexible application of human resource policies to certain individuals, which the courts may well construe as disp disparate treatment and a breach of contract. Public and private sectors Whatever slight regulation of the employment relationship existed in the private sector prior to the 20th century was absent in the public sector. Although the employment at-will doctrine was technically applicable to both public and private employment, the vast majority of public employment was based on political patronage and an understanding that the government employer was unchallengeable in personal matters and immune from lawsuit under the doctrine and sovereignty. The Pendleton Civil Service Act, enacted in 1883, although generally viewed as a reform designed to curb perceived public employment abuses, was designed as much to wrest patronage from the hands of local politicians as it was to establish a merit selection and retention system. The original Civil Service Commission created by the Act was given jurisdiction only over public employment in Washington, D.C., the federal custom houses, and post offices in larger cities. The coverage of the Pendleton Act was expanded by the subsequent administrators, but this expansion was primarily intended to protect incumbent patronage job holders appointed by new administrations. Perhaps for same reason, many states and municipalities adopted merit appointment and retention systems of their own. Political patronage continued to dominate government employment throughout the early part of the 20th century. This was a little significance to anyone other than public employees, since total employment at 
all levels of government reached only 3 million in 1934. However, government employment nearly doubled by 1944, spurred by both New Deal public service employment opportunities and the demands of World War II. Public employment continued to grow after the war as municipalities and school districts expanded their size, tax base, and employment levels. The growth in public employment led career employees to seek greater control over their ten tenure wages and working conditions through collective bargaining. Wisconsin established the first state public sector collective bargaining statute in 1958 and federal employees obtained limited rights to bargain in 1962 when President Kennedy issued Executive Order 10988. These rights were expanded by President Nixon and Ford in subsequent executive orders. The Nixon and Ford executive orders provided comparable organizational and recognition rights to those rights enjoyable by private sector employees under the National Labor Relations Act. The major difference was the federal employees, unlike their private sector counterparts, were not permitted to bargain over wages or to strike. Page 10 in 1972, the Postal Reorganization Act created the United States Postal Service to replace the Federal Department of the Post Office and placed postal employees under jurisdiction of the National Labor Relations Act, limiting only the right of those employees to strike. Following the passage of the Wisconsin Statute, Many eastern, midwestern, and west coast states adopted public employee labor relations legislation in the 1960s and 70s. Currently, most states have created some type of legislation permitting states and municipal employees to organize and bargain. This state legislation varies substantially, granting public employees in some jurisdiction rights comparable to those provided by the National Labor Relations Act, whereas employees in other jurisdictions enjoy only limited rights. For federal employees, the executive orders previously mentioned were supplanted by the Federal Service Labor Management Relations Statute, a part of the Civil Service Reforms Act of 1979. The statute continued the prohibition of strikes and bargaining over economic issues. Protections for public employees The courts have also had a role in differentiating the employment environment for public employees. Most significantly, they have held that a public employee, unlike a private employee, has a property right in his or her job. Since a public employee's job is necessary to maintain self and family, it was argued that she or he mentioned received the protection of the government. The Supreme Court took this position in Perry v. Sinderman when a school board failed to renew a teacher's contract and did not provide an official statement as to the reason for his termination or allow an opportunity for a hearing.